Hello and welcome to this edition of our AWS podcast series, Innovation Ambassadors. I'm Sarah Armstrong, and as Senior Manager for Worldwide Prototyping at AWS, along with my AWS co-hosts from around the world, we'll act as your ambassadors to some of the most interesting engagements with our AWS Solutions Architecture prototyping teams. Every episode, we provide you with a roadmap to innovation and technology solutions. We're so glad you joined us on this journey. In this episode of Innovation Ambassadors, we're showcasing the journey of Bristol-Myers Squibb, one of the world's largest biopharmaceutical companies, and their collaboration with our prototyping team for strategic industries. Let's find out how cloud analytics and 3D visualization techniques are applied to single-cell technology research and aid in their mission to discover, develop, and deliver transformational medicines. Joining us from Bristol-Myers Squibbs, I'd like to welcome Gotze Bodanovsky, Associate Director of IT Research and Early Development. Thanks for joining us, Gotze. Sarah, thanks for having us. And also joining us is Franklin Betancourt, Senior Biomedical Data Science Consultant from RX Data Science and lead of the Rapid Digital Solutions team for R&D at BMS. Thanks for being here, Franklin. Yeah, thanks for having me. And from AWS, we have Stephen Curtis, Senior Prototyping Architect from our BDSI prototyping team. Always great to connect with you, Stephen. I am very glad to be here. So go say most of our listeners, of course, will know Bristol-Myers Squibb. Can you share a little bit with our listeners specifically about the science we're going to be talking about today of single-cell technology? The state of, of science, Sarah, is rapidly growing data across multiple scientific technologies and huge effort in integrating data and finding insights. Single-cell technologies are, are some of the core scientific technologies used in clinical diagnostics and, and drug development and really drive forward the paradigm of personalized medicine. And what was the key vision for this project that we'll be speaking about? I can give a little bit of insight on how this idea came to light, but at a high level, there were a few hypotheses that the team was set to test and experiment with. One was build a machine learning solution for biomarker discovery that can be used by bench scientists who don't necessarily have bioinformatics background. The second objective was to build a low-code, no-code solution that is flexible enough to enable um, use of multiple machine learning models. And the third one, which is really very exciting on, on how we tackle this in this project, is explore the possibility for use of 3D visualizations generated by the machine learning uh, pipelines that I mentioned above. And how did you come up with this concept? You were sharing a little bit about the inspiration yeah, so this is the, the the germination of the idea. You know, I was actually shopping for a gaming console for my kids when I realized that you know these devices are packed with some really sophisticated hardware. That if we have that capability to deploy those pieces of hardware at a scale, we can really accelerate uh, scientific discoveries in terms of processing and graphical representations needed for data visualization. And it really, the, the question that I asked the team early on was, well. How come advanced 3D visualizations are used in gaming industry and really in medical training as well, but not in biological research? Why can't we empower the scientists to do things differently and reimagine the, the, the study of immunology and, and cell biology? So Franklin, talk to us a little bit about what the current state is. What are the systems that scientists currently have? What does that look like? 
in the Rapid Solutions team, right, I partner really closely with scientists and the rest of my team, we all partner very closely with scientists to learn about their workflows and their pain points and, and to help bring these machine learning and artificial intelligence tools to their data sets to help them get a lot of information out of it. That takes a lot of compute power. There's these really large data sets to, to manage and move around. And then we have to try to share all that information. So, you know, we'll connect a bunch of different algorithms together to help scientists clean and, and study their data and, and process it and then visualize it. And that all, of course, is kind of hard to do on its own. But then, you know, we get all of these requests. Uh, they're all a little different. It doesn't give us time to, say, optimize solutions to scale across huge clusters or to make a really, you know, memory efficient, easily, you know, shareable cloud based app or something for them to, to share their findings. So, you know, I've, in the past, I've, I've given people uh, interactive renderings that crash their laptop, but it runs great on my data science laptop, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these are the sorts of things we, we deal with, uh, you know, regularly. So good say, how did you get involved with AWS to help on this project? We actually looked elsewhere and across possible partners who can help us build something like this because I guess previous experience in, in the 3D space, even gaming industry and, and medical training uh, done in 3D, what we came to realize is we needed a team that will bring the science and the needs of Bristol Myers Squibb, someone who is uh, an expert in cloud, and then a machine learning pipeline that actually can join the data and the cloud solutions. In discussion with AWS and, and Steven, we felt that this team is actually a really a good fit to execute on, on an innovative project like this one. Steven, take us from there. Talk to us a little bit about how you approached the situation. The uh, prototype in question, the project in question, sort of had three main components. One was a composable data analytics pipeline, but for flow cytometry. Uh, that's sort of under the hood. There was this no-code solution that would give wider access to scientists. And then the last and sort of the most fun, if you will, was the idea of how can we take these sort of static visualizations used in this research and make it dynamic and, and interactive in 3D. The first task, that under the hood pipeline, uh, other folks on our team, Josh Burns and our data scientist, George Barsakov, worked with Franklin to take all the different logic and code and proprietary software involved in their analysis of flow cytometry and break them into individual chunks and then find the best way to containerize each one of those chunks and then put them into the cloud, in the AWS cloud, in this case, in the form of a group of containers pieced together by step functions. And what that gave us the ability to do was take their entire flow cytometry analysis process and make it available to everybody in the cloud, but most importantly, composable and shareable. And that composability, Gose, was really important to you, yeah? Yes, sir. We, we needed to have the flexibility. We have many scientists representing and using different scientific workflows and answering questions at a different stage of the drug development continuum. So having that flexibility to replace a piece and put something else and still execute on a pipeline, that, that's actually a powerful solution that can help as many scientists across the company. And Franklin, maybe you can give us some concept about the scale of the data these pipelines are really working with. So you're getting all this information about a single cell at a time. And then in a sample of blood from a patient, commonly you'll collect a lot of different samples, actually multiple samples from a patient. Each sample might have tens of millions of cells in it. 
times that by like five or six a patient. And then say maybe you are running a clinical trial or just a multi-patient study, then you have tons of patients to deal with. So you couple that with ever-growing capabilities of these instruments where you're getting more and more features or columns for your, your cells. You wind up with tens or hundreds of gigabytes and then say you process that and add in any more uh, new features or, or computed components, that, that data set grows uh, really quickly. And you know, moving that or doing that with a conventional laptop or even on a single server can be really unwieldy, especially as we kind of are hitting this new stride in, in single cell technology these days, right? If you guys just heard, we finally sequenced the entire human genome as before it was used to be a, maybe only 2% that actually ever got sequenced. So we just made uh, 50 times more data per patient. Stephen, that's some of the key architectural principles that come in, that scalability, elasticity that needs to come into your architecture, yeah? That's correct. On the one hand, we address the challenge in this analysis in the fact that these were very large data sets. Running the processing on top of them was very resource intensive. And then, of course, if one failed or maybe you needed to change it and repeat it, it can be very cumbersome. So one of the advantages to breaking the entire workflow into individual chunks is you can actually, on each one of those containers, change the runtime environment or the libraries that you use or the instance type to optimize for what operates on top of that type of process in the most efficient way. So in our last experiments, we were able to prove that, okay, we can do the entire flow cytometry process. Some containers are going to be compute optimized. Some are going to be memory optimized. Some are going to be GPU optimized. And that, once again, is just one way that we were able to approach this challenge with the AWS toolset. And I'd say that optimization so important for what you were looking for. And of course, everyone cares about cost efficiency, but I'm sure that was a key consideration for you, right? It's absolutely one of the key considerations because we like to build solutions that come at a cost and can scale across the company. And being a large pharmaceutical company, we have hundreds and thousands of scientists who the solution should be used across the different groups. So it's absolutely something that is elastic enough to scale when needed and downscale when we're offline. We talked through that data pipeline and getting that auto-scaling in place. Talk to us about what your favorite part was, Stephen. You talked about the visualizations. How did you approach that from a technology standpoint? So this was interesting because if the project was purely just to move this analysis to to the cloud, to the AWS cloud, we wouldn't really need to have understood what flow cytometry was or what dimensional reduction techniques were, such as TISNI and UMAP, or how researchers actually use this to discover drugs that could be used to cure diseases. However, if we're going to try to build a new tool or expand an existing tool that researchers are going to use, we really needed to understand how that worked. So I had to sort of go back to school, understand the basics of the science, how this data is being collected, what's it used for, understand a little bit about the machine learning or the math concepts behind what dimensional reductions are, and then ultimately try to get inside the head of a a researcher that's going to be using this tool to figure out how they go about their process of taking these visualizations and using them to come to conclusions. Yeah, so Sarah, interesting point that I wanted to make here is 
Stephen comes to the project with zero to none uh, experience or knowledge in flow cytometry. And yes, a couple of weeks later, he gets exposed to how this analysis is being conducted. It was interesting that when the 3D solution was put in a, in a browser form, he came back to the team and said, well, I, I'm noticing something very interesting in the data set. And we analyzed actually a, a COVID-19 data set where we had healthy donors and uh, disease patients. And he saw the difference between the two groups and came back to us and said, well, I'm looking at this, but I don't know what it means. Is this what scientists would be looking for when comparing these two two groups of, of patients? Interestingly, he came across a finding, which is a hallmark of COVID-19 and something that was later published by the team that made this data publicly accessible. So it was interesting to put all of this together and the ease of how Stephen came to that comparison was really a huge benefit because it just speaks about how the scientists will use a solution like this. So I've seen these images. They're actually quite beautiful, aren't they, Gose? Like they're these 3D images and you use color, right, Stephen, to try to represent some of the dimensions. We think of things in terms of three and four dimensions and we can see a diagram and understand it makes sense to us. But these bioinformatics data sets have 100 or 150 dimensions, which we can't visualize or conceptualize as a human. So these dimensional reduction algorithms will take those 100-column data sets and figure out relationships that we can't see, and they represent those in terms of clustering data. So when you're representing that in a 3D cloud, what you'll see is these clusters of little points. Now, how can we empower the scientists to discover and make conclusions off of those? Well, I went back and watched Iron Man 2 and saw how Tony Stark sort of used his hands in 3D cloud to try to discover a new atom. And I, I try to put that into this tool to allow the user to spin it around organically, to zoom in, zoom out. And then once they found something that they thought was a cluster, they could then separate it and compare two groups. They could bring in any one of those 150 columns and colorize the dots based on what the values were. And in the end, I was able to use that tool, like to Gose's point, to identify an island, a cluster, and then figure out what a phenotypical marker for that cluster was that was in one group, not the other. Gose is going to correct me if I said that wrong. <laughs> and then, I was saying you're sounding very scientific, Stephen. <laughs> and, and then ask the question like, hey, I noticed ICU patients have this, but non-ICU patients don't in this range and, and you know, and act like a scientist, but in a very real kind of way. Well, that ability to visualize and actually look at data in a different way, go say that was something that was kind of an interesting outcome for you, wasn't it? Yeah, so this has not been done. It's definitely not been done at scale. Some attempts for single cell technologies have been published, but definitely not at the scale that we're attempting to do this. And it was interesting because we set this as an experiment. And honestly, I wasn't expecting that we're going to get this far. And we did. And that's that's pretty remarkable. It's amazing to have that delivered even in, in the prototype. Franklin, often what we talk about in this podcast in terms of experimentation is also the things that didn't go the way we expected to or those challenges that and pain points that we had to overcome along the way. Talk to us a little bit about some of those obstacles. A lot of the times, right, we mentioned already the the scale of this data. So some algorithms won't work if you have beyond a certain amount of data points. So we had to switch out algorithms or, or change uh, hardware, and Stephen can talk about that in a little bit. 
you know, then there's the shareability, right? You know, how do I share a hundred gigabyte data set in a way that's you know reasonable? Can't just email that uh, as an attachment to someone, right? And then uh, if you want an interactive visualization, we've delivered some solutions here and there before, but you know, a lot of laptops can't really handle uh, that in you know in the browser, right? It'll crash them. Then there's a the matter of making our code. You got to rewrite it to kind of make it nice for the cloud and, and decomposable into these these smaller bytes and pieces, and then fit into the Amazon infrastructure that's available. So there's this whole other uh, extra level of of kind of designing and, and planning that we had to kind of put in bake into this solution that we uh, you know typically don't get the chance to when we're doing these these rapid kind of projects. And Stephen, you ran up against some limits yourself, didn't you? I think that our goal was to use the web browser for the end user experience because it's the universal user interface platform. And being able to manage loading the data set, running the workflows and the analysis from the browser, that was no problem because all the work was happening in the AWS cloud. But the visualization in the browser, that was challenging. So we went through a couple of iterations of, okay, we can get 5,000 dots to show up, on most devices, now we can get 100,000, now we can get a million. And through those iterations, I was going through different browser-based techniques for 3D visualization. And what I ultimately landed on, what's actually not even in the solution yet that's shared, it's part of the ongoing solution we're developing, is a straight-up game engine approach to dealing with this many points being on the screen. Ultimately, I think the final polished production solution is going to be a a game engine approach to doing the visualization. Gote, talk to us a little bit about where we are now in the process. You've got uh, prototype engagement complete. You've got your data pipelines and infrastructure laid out, this visualization component. Where are we now? I would like to see an MVP-like, so minimum viable product-like deployment at Bristol-Myers Squibb and allowing our scientists to actually use their own data to which they're very familiar and test it. And it's really where we come in to take notes on what works for them and what doesn't. How is the user experience kind of working out along the spectrum and apply that to something that will be sort of like a final version of a product? I just want to end, Franklin, I'll end with you asking what was your biggest takeaway or advice that you might share with listeners about this experience? We didn't know this was going to work and we didn't necessarily plan on, on building this tool for streamlining um, computing in the cloud in such a way and, and bringing this kind of latest and greatest algorithms to scientists, ideally. And you know, that kind of just evolved out of bringing you guys, the cloud experts, Stephen and, and your team, Goche, myself, and, and the scientists all together. We could all bring our expertise together and sort of build this solution. So while it maybe wasn't clear that there was going to be a key business outcome, at the end of the day, this is going to make turning around code and turning around analysis for scientists really fast, really easy. It's going to make our compute costs a lot cheaper. We couldn't have done it unless we took the time and took the chance to bring this type of team together. I think two. One, looking at this prototype and it intersected with many other prototypes we were doing in automotive and manufacturing. And it's led to our prototyping team developing a package solution that our customers can use as an MVP to experiment with this kind of work. So that was very exciting. But then sort of almost an inspirational point was that when our team and and the BMS team got together, we found that we all shared a common passion for being nerdy about 
our thing and then being fans of other technical things and getting us all together to nerd out together and build something new, that was amazing. And I think that we're only starting to scratch the surface on getting the technical and industry folks and the science folks together to come up with new things. And Gotze, final word to you. What were your biggest takeaways? I think about this project, Sarah, in terms of innovation. Innovation is not a straight line. It's you know the path forward is not always clear. When when I first had the idea about the 3D visualization of single cell data, I didn't know Stephen or Franklin or if if this is even possible. It means taking risk. It it can take multiple cycles of back and forth in getting there, but it's it's well worth it. And and especially when we try to think about democratizing machine learning and making it accessible to as many, uh, in, in in this case, empowering scientists to find insights in data. It's uh, I think it was very uh, rewarding experience. That is so inspiring. Well, thank you all for being with us today and sharing your journey with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I'd like to thank our listeners for coming on today's journey with us. Innovation Ambassadors is a production of the AWS Media Series. Look for future episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite streaming platform. If you have ideas for future episodes or comments on this one, send us a tweet at hashtag AWS Innovation Ambassadors and share your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.